If you have your Bibles, uh, um, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 19, verse 1 through 10. And I'll invite you to stand and we'll read this together. Luke chapter 19, verses uh, 1 through 10. Luke 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up the sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and come down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to his house. He is also son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to save the just lost. Let's pray together. Father, what we do not know about generosity, about giving God, teach us. God, what we have not, God, give us. God, what we are not, kindly make us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. You be seated. One, one time, a rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked him what one thing he must do to receive eternal life. And maybe you remember the story of, of the young man who was rich and was good at keeping the rules, keeping the laws. But Jesus told him that the kingdom of God wasn't just about keeping rules. Jesus wanted this young man to be his follower, but he also knew that the man had turned his money into an idol. He loved his riches as much, as much or more than he loved God. So Jesus told the man to sell everything and give the money to the poor, that he would be able to follow Jesus and be part of the kingdom of God. But something surprising happened next. The rich and ruler, as you all know, became very sad and walked away from Jesus. He loved his money so much that he didn't want to give it up, even to follow the Son of God, forfeit salvation. And here's what Jesus said next to his disciples in, in verses 24 and 25. How hard it is for the rich people to enter God's kingdom. Is it hard for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? It's even harder for a rich to enter God's kingdom. See, the problem with this rich and ruler was not that he had riches, but rather that the riches had him. The, the problem with many of us is not what we have, it's, but rather what, what we have owns us. This worried the disciples in verse 26, 27, they asked Jesus, then who can be saved? Today we're going to read a story about another rich man and who went up with, to Jesus but unlike the young rich young ruler, he wanted also eternal life. This rich man in today's story is a beautiful example that things that are impossible for people 
to do are possible for God to do. There's nothing impossible with God, even for the rich. But let me set the stage a little bit for us. In 19.1, he says he entered Jericho and was passing through. After many months on the road, uh, Jesus finally enters Jericho, which was located 15 miles northwest of Jerusalem, about five miles from the Jordan River. Um, and at the end of chapter 19, we see Jesus uh, coming to Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. Um, and it's this Jericho is the last major city the Lord visits before entering Jerusalem to be crucified. Uh, he has prophesied several times that when he reaches Jerusalem, he will be betrayed and tried by sinful men, beaten and mocked, killed, and then raised from the grave three days later. So this is the last city that Jesus would visit before he would die. And we know from, from the story that he was just at Bethany, and, and, and that's um, Bethany is where he raised Lazarus. So there's three points to our outline this morning. Number one, he saw me. Number two, he welcomed me. And number three, he changed me. In, in verse two, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. The first thing Luke tells us about this man, that he was a chief collect, tax collector and he was rich. This is the only time in the scriptures where chief, is attached to the occupation of tax collector, meaning he held a high office in the Roman tax system. He was in charge of, uh, of the tax collection in the city of Jericho. Remember Matthew, one of the disciples, was a, a tax collector, but, but Zacchaeus was his boss, right? So he was the higher up. He was rich through extortion, uh, he took money from his own people by strong-arming them, by hiring thugs to, to go to people's home and collect taxes. He is a traitor of all traitors. He was a crook and a thief of a different sort. He, he was the guy on the top of the pyramid. He, he is loaded. He was a multi-millionaire. Likely, he did not earn his position by really working hard, he probably rose to the rank by being more crooked than the other tax collector. This is a guy, if he was today, he, he owns private jets or vacation homes and a staff to serve him. Only eats the finest of foods, only drinks the finest of wines. He's the type of man who seizes and the, homes and assets and cars and, and bankrupting people and taking their retirement accounts and taking their children's college fund. This is an evil man. This was not a good man. As a tax collector, there are certain benefits he has, meaning he has money, he has thugs, he has bodyguards, he has everything. But one thing he can't do is he can't go to the synagogue. He can't go to church. He can't interact with people. He can't even go into a home of, of a self-respecting Jew. He can't even eat a meal with them. He's isolated completely so that the only people who surrounded him was the rest of the riffraff that would be considered in the category of outcasts and rejects. Yes, he was rich, but he was outcast and a reject. He was a leper of a different kind. The Jewish Mishnah said that a tax collector was so loathsome that they should not even consider it human and that it was not a sin to lie to them because lying to an animal is not a sin. 
This is a man who is so possessed by the love of money that he's willing to lie, cheat, steal, and sell out his closest relationship to get it. See, naturally, no one betrays his people, but he did. Now, in verse 3 and 4, Luke tells us that he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was a well, about to pass that way. Luke then tells us that Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, and he was a short man. This verse gives us some interesting insight about what it was like when Jesus entered into a city. He had attained nearly a rock star status. It kind of helps us understand the jealousy of the Jewish leaders. Remember a while ago I showed you the map that, that Jericho was so close to, to um to Bethany and where he just raised someone from the grave, right? So imagine raising someone from the grave. Can you imagine how much followers he has coming with him? Now they come, all of them, to Jericho to see what he will do next. Jericho is an interesting place because um, Jericho is also where Jesus um, was led by the Holy Spirit to, the, to be tempted by, for 40 days and 40 nights. So it's the same place, Jericho. So now all these followers are, are, are with him. And, and, and so there was a big crowd and, and Zacchaeus was a little man. So what is he to do? But he wanted to see Jesus. See, people were just throwing themselves at, at Jesus. They were leaving what they were doing, going out to the street to see him. He, but Zacchaeus heard something about this new rabbi who did miracles and astounded people with his teaching or even accepted the outcasts. But more than that, Zacchaeus had a dissatisfied heart. There, there was a hole in his heart. There, there, was a, there was a discontent in his heart that money was not enough to make him happy. It wasn't making him joyous. It, it was not enough. Nothing was satisfying him. So there was a hole in his heart, like many of us had before we had Jesus. We, we thought we had everything. We thought we had everything figured out. And yet, there was still something missing. You couldn't buy enough things to satisfy your need. And here's what's amazing about the story. That Zacchaeus, who had everything the world has to offer, but all he wanted to see was Jesus. See, this man knew that he was alienated from God. He, he knew he was lost. He, he knew he lacked eternal life. He, he, knew, he, he knew that if, if nothing changes in his life, it will be no good. He was definitely feeling guilty over his sin. He needed mercy. Remember the tax collector in Luke chapter 18? If you open one chapter, go back one chapter over. Just go back to Luke 18. Uh, we hear the story of the tax collector in Luke 18. Where it's starting verse 10, and two men went up to the, to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and, and another a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes and all, all, all that I get, but the tax collector standing afar off would not even look up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the attitude that we need to see Zacchaeus in. He wanted to see Jesus because he wanted mercy. He needed God's mercy. In, in Psalm 51, verse 1, actually, the psalmist uh, pleads, and, and I think this is a, I believe this is the true uh, sinner's prayer in, in Psalm 51, verse 1. You know, if you ever know the sinner's prayer, I think this is the real sinner's prayer in Psalms 51, verse 1, uh, where the psalmist says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. This is what he wanted. This is what he was desperate for. He wasn't desperate for more money or more houses or more cars. He was desperate for mercy. If you were to come across someone like this man today, how many of you would have written them off? How many of you guys would have written them off? This is the man who does not deserve to go to heaven. How many people would, would you have written off as not interested in God? Perhaps we look at their demeanor or their weakened activities and think they would not be receptive to the gospel. I, I know what you're thinking. You think that you know your friends. You think that they will not be interested in God and would you reject any invitation to anything spiritual. But according to a recent survey, one out of four people say that they would accept an invitation to church if asked. So for every four people say that they would accept an invitation to church, they will come. So for every four friends that you can think of, statistically speaking, one of them will come with you, but only if you invited them. You see, it's wrong for us to look at our friends and only see the outside, thinking that they have gone too far to listen to your invitation about God. No one is too far. Zacchaeus was not too far. If anyone was far, it was this man. But no one is, a, no one is too far from the, for the grace of God. Zacchaeus' interest was so strong that he leaves his place of business and tries to go see Jesus. But he faces obstacle, like I said before. He, he had a large crowd, and he was a short man. So can you imagine, like, looking over? So what does he do? He said, I'm going to look for a tree. How many of you guys have ever climbed a tree before? How many of you guys have a child climbed a tree? How many of you guys have fallen out of a tree before? Oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm glad you're still here. So, but most of you guys, so he needed to see. He was so desperate. He was so determined that he ran on ahead to the road he knew Jesus would take and, and climb a sycamore tree. Roughly short trunk with, with low branches in order to get a glimpse of Jesus. Actually, it was so interesting, but I remember last, I was just looking at this passage, I'm going, I remember going to Jericho, and, and one of the things I remember is the wall, of course, the wall of Jericho that fell, but I also see uh, an archaeologist who we're walking with in, in, in Jericho uh, said, you know, this could be the path where, where Zacchaeus was. This, this could be the road where, where, where Zacchaeus met Jesus. And, and guess what was on either side, right or left, was a sycamore tree or, or a mulberry tree, right? So we don't know. Maybe it is. But, but one thing is for sure, he really wanted to see who, Jesus, who true Jesus is. He wanted to see who Jesus is. You see, you and I are not allowed to decide whom we will share Christ with and whom we wouldn't. Because if you have a friend then pray for them and do good to them and invite them to come. Not come to church, come to Jesus. See, church does not save anyone. Jesus saves anyone. You may find you have a Zacchaeus on your hands, but, but one thing that we know from this story is this. 
going back to a parable in Matthew 13, uh, Jesus talks about this parable of the hidden treasure and the great pearl. So what happens is they find this treasure, and what did they do when they find this treasure? They know they don't own the land, so what did they do? They went home and sold everything they have so they could buy the land that they just found. Why? Because they saw a greater treasure in that land, so they're willing to sell everything they have. Same thing with a pearl. They saw a great pearl. They went and sold everything they have so they could have this pearl. So for Zacchaeus, I want you to have this picture. He has everything in the world. But finally, he saw Jesus. And he saw Jesus as the kingdom of God. He saw Jesus as the hidden treasure. He saw Jesus as the great pearl. So what did he do? He was willing to give everything that he has so that he can have Jesus. See, the Bible is very clear. You can't have your money and Jesus too. You can't serve God and money. It's impossible. You will either serve one and not, not both. You can't. So, so what is this telling us about, about this man? He was rich. Very rich. But he was lonely. He was empty. And he wanted something to fill his soul. And he found him. His name is Jesus. And he would do everything he can to get a hold of Jesus. So what did Jesus do? He welcomed me. He welcomed me. That's what Zacchaeus would have said. He welcomed me. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. When Jesus came to the place where Zacchaeus sat in the tree waiting, the Lord stopped and looked up and made eye contact with him and called him by name. He said, Zacchaeus. Keep in mind that he never met Jesus before. A perfect stranger. But Jesus knew his name. Actually, it shouldn't surprise us because the psalmist in Psalms 147 verse 4 that he named all the stars. The verb translate hurry and come down are imperatives, meaning right away. That's pretty affirming. I must stay at your house. I want to stop here for a moment. What if Jesus will tell you this? I must stay at your house. How many guys will run out here now and go clean up your house? <laughs> right? What if Jesus would say to you, hey, I must stay, hurry, come down, I must stay at your house today. How many guys will run out here and clean up everything that you have? How many guys will do that? Right? I want you guys to do that. Imagine your house right now. Imagine the mess in your house. Just imagine. And Jesus is going to say, I'm about to come to your house. You guys will run so, so fast. I don't think you'll drive that, will drive that fast. I mean, you'll, I think Betty will get to her house in three minutes <laughs> instead of five minutes. But, but I'm just blown away by that because why did Jesus, what would I do? What's the first thing you will clean? Bathroom, okay. Yeah, I think that's important. <laughs> right? But, but Jesus, the word must. The must, he said, must. It was divine necessity. I must. Every time this word is repeated in the book of Luke, these are the things that Jesus must do. Why? Because this instance was divine sovereign purpose. This was divine timing and divine location. 
from a vernacular point of view, we would say that as far as God is concerned, you are the man and this is your day to be saved. This was the day that he was being drawn to God. Remember when, when Jesus was, after he was baptized and John the Baptist said, uh, behold, this is the Lamb of God who will save, who will save the people from their sins. Um, and then John and uh, Andrew came to Jesus and say, Jesus, where are you staying? And Jesus came in and said, come and, and you will see. See, there was this invitation that, that Christ said, come, just come. And this is the same invitation that he's telling to the kids, I must come to your house. I, I must go there. As it was with Andrew and John, it was a day of their salvation. As it was for this man, it was a day that he would be saved. See, there was a day that was appointed that you would be saved. There was a day that that was a day that you would recognize your sin. That was a day that you would recognize that you need a Savior. That was a day that you needed the mercy of God. There was that day. How many of you guys know when you actually were born again? The actual day. How many of you guys know when you actually believe? You know that day? How about the month? How about the year? Okay. You do know, right? <laughs> I just want to ask. You do know, right? But there was that day. You might not remember that day, but Jesus does. Because that's the day when he saved you. In 2 Corinthians 6-2, Paul said, In a favorable time, I must I listen to you, and in the day of salvation, I will help you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. How many of you are, are just glad that, that your day came? How many of you guys are just glad that your day came? Because sadly, the alternative is that some people will never see that day. But you did because of the mercy of God. So what was determined in eternity past in the counsel of God before anything was created is about to come to reality for Zacchaeus. That day was his day of salvation. In John 6.44, I want you guys to know that it I, I was not trying to avoid such a big theological discussion, but we have to because uh, of this passage. In John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There are two sides of salvation. There's God's role and there's man's role. Uh, I don't know the percentage. I, I think it's very low on, on the man's role. Uh, if it's 99.9 God, it's that point one, or even, I don't know what's lower than point one, but uh, yes, there's a role, because John 3, 16 tells us, no one can come to God by, by Operation Bootstrap, no one. Man has been so degraded by both his sin capacity and his acts of sin that he stands alienated from God. He does not have a natural disposition to believe in Christ. He needs God to break through in his unbelief. He needs God to intervene. He needs God to take off his blinders. See, there was this time for Zacchaeus. There was a time where God will open his eyes, where, where God will, will see, listen, and, and open his eyes, and, and that he would repent of his sins. See, this was the day that... that he was going to get saved. And I'm, I'm still glad that God is still in the business of saving, aren't you? Aren't you glad God is still in the business of saving? Because how many of you here have friends and family who, who you know are not saved? That if they were to die, 
they will not have eternal life with Christ. They'll be separate from Christ forever. You guys know people like that? That's why there's still a God who's what, is still in the business of what? Seeking and saving the lost, right? Amen? It's still good. So, but here, here in this passage, Jesus says, no one can come to me. No one. You and I could not come to God because we were smart or because we understood or because of something. We could not come to God. Like your friends, your family, your loved ones who does not know Christ, they cannot come to God on their own. God must seek and save them. That's the whole point of this passage. This hard-hearted Jews in this context could not come to God on their own. They thought they could. They will always brag that they are of Abraham, right? They always brag, oh, I'm, I'm the son of Abraham. I'm the daughter of Abraham. So they could always think that they're saved because they're sons of Abraham by heritage. But God said there's neither Jew nor Greek. So in John 6.35, he tells us that everyone needs divine enablement. Jesus said that it is possible for people to come to him because they cannot do it on their own. The only way that you and I could come to Jesus is if he comes and gets us. There's a qualifying word here, which is the word unless, which is, says no one could come to me unless. Then in verse 37, Jesus tells us that negative result, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So only those selected by God can come to the Son and believe in him. And God's Spirit enabled them to come. All those who have been invited can rest assured that God was working. So what I mean by this is this. People get all bent out of shape with this. You, you mean that God selected just a few people to be saved and, and not the others? There's actually no confusion. Because God knows all things, doesn't he? He knows who will believe and he knows who will reject. He knows when they would believe and they know when they will continually reject. God knows all of that. Right? So for someone to say, oh, I, 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 God is so unfair that he will choose some people to go to hell and just some people to heaven. Th that's not true of God because God is merciful and good and gracious. But he came to his own. Remember, Jesus said, he, John said that he came to his own, but his own what? Believe him not, right? Rejected him, crucified him. So what else could Jesus do? For three and a half years, he loved his people. He did miracles around them. He taught them. He lived among them. And yet, at the end, they, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus was already pushing himself. Here, I am the Son of God. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I'm here to save you, save you from your sins. I'm here to forgive you. But instead, they what? They crucify him instead. So for, for people to think, oh, God is unfair. You know what's unfair is for, for God the Father is to send his son here to save you and I. That's unfair. Right? But, but so God is, God is so fair because he just knows that, that if I come to you and you know how sinful you are and you know that you need mercy, that, that what? Then I will come to you because you're repentant. He said, I will never give grace to the who, the proud, but always only to the humble, right? So when we see this, this doctrine of election comes in, people think, oh, you know, he, he's unfair. He, 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 why would he do that? He will never do that. But God is also just. There's people who just plainly rejects God. Not all people will go to heaven. I'm so sorry to tell you, but not all will go to heaven. 
The Bible tells us that. Because there's some who will just say, God, I, Jesus, I hate you. Jesus, I don't want anything to do with you. And yet there's people who say, God, I need you. I need your mercy. I need your grace. And that's an evidence that they have been what? Called by God. Furthermore, in, 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 in verse 39, Jesus said, this is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. You know, I find such comfort in that, that it was the will of the Father to send Christ, that of all he has given me. And you know that all, the word all, could be you. I, I could never know your spiritual state. You, you could tell me your say, but I, I, I will never know because I'm not God. You, you could tell me all you want. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. But I, I, I can't. I don't know. But, but if you are a Christian, God said, you're part of this all he has given me. And, and so I find it so comforting that God said, I should lose nothing, meaning I will never lose my salvation. And that one day he will raise it up. In this verse, man receives something from heaven and from the Father. That is, by receiving Jesus, we have eternal life. The words no one refers to anyone who may approach God, not a select few previously predetermined by God. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, I just want to tell you how impossible it is for us to come to God. It says here that we are dead in our trespasses, it says, meaning you are dead man walking, okay? in which you once walk according to the age of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Your God was Satan, uh, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once, past tense, con conducted ourselves in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and, and of our nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we are. We're dead in our trespass sin. We are children of light, wrath. We are children of the devil. Right? But I love verse 4. If you read chapter 2, verse 4 of Ephesians, but thanks be to God. Right? Thanks be to God. He gave us the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most amazing thing, isn't it? We were dead. We were incapable. We couldn't understand God. And yet God says what? I will come to you and save you. See, all of us before God... Before God called us, we were dead man walking. In other words, you do not have the capacity to come to Christ on your own because you are fundamentally alienated from God. And Zacchaeus knew this. There is a natural estrangement from God and belief in Christ from birth. And as Paul said in Romans 3.10, no one what understands God. No one seeks after God. Not even one. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's who we were. That's why I love what R.C. Sproul said. We do not find God as a result of our search for him. We are found by him. We're found by him. The search for God does not end in conversion. It begins at conversion. It is the converted person who genuinely and sincerely seeks after God. That's who we are. Everyone begins with an assumption about what they believe. The philosopher begins with the assumption that he can come to truth by reason. The scientist begins with the belief that the physical is where reality can be found. The skeptic begins with the assumption that the truth cannot be found. Why should any assumption beginning with a finite man be even reliable? You see, our finiteness cannot come 
to infinite ultimate truth because our limitation keeps us from it, our sin. And so the choice of any assumption of finite man will always be arbitrary. So Christians do not begin with the finite assumption because only God can give human an infinite perspective of truth. You see, man is epistemologically at the mercy of God. God took the initiative in our inner inability to know anything eternal. God first took the initiative to reveal himself to us. No one comes independently to God. That is why we have the next phrase, unless the Father who sent me draws him. He was drawing Zacchaeus to himself here. It is God who initiates our fundamental assumption about what, what is true. So for the Christian, it begins with a response to God's initiative. In Christianity, faith and reason are not separate, but are related in, in its proper order. So our evidence confirms our faith. We believe in order to understand. Only God can speak for God. Therefore, man is really under the absolute control of God. No wonder Jesus said in verse 10, the very purpose why he came. He came to seek and to save the lost. So if someone will ask you, why did Jesus come? This is your answer. To seek and to save the lost. Right? Why did Jesus come? For, come? Why did he come? He came to seek and save the lost. Let's make it a little bit more personal. Why did Jesus Christ come? To seek you. So that he can save you. Because you were lost. And now you're found. I want you to know the gravity of this. Why would a king step out of his throne, come here to earth, to live among us sinners, be mocked, be killed, be beaten, be crucified? Because that's what it takes to seek and to save you who are lost. So when people said that Christ loves me, he loves you so much that he left heaven so he could seek you. He left heaven so he could save you. And, and this is what Zacchaeus realizes. He realizes that, that Jesus is my king, is my God, and he came to seek and save a, a rotten chief tax collector like me. So, so Zacchaeus said he, he, seek, he sought an extortioner. He, he sought a, a traitor. He, he sought a lost person in order to save him. You see, conversion is the heart of Jesus' mission in the world. He came looking for lost people. To save is to rescue from harm and to deliver from danger. But God, in his mercy and grace and love, sent Christ to seek and to save those who face his own wrath and judgment. When you read the gospel, Jesus always, always does this. He always seeking and calling people out by name. Aren't you glad that he called you by name? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Of all the billions of people in the world that's ever lived, he called you. Can I ask you something? Can you tell me anything special about you? That he would save you? Just think, one thing that you're special apart from being a chief sinner. Nothing special about me, nothing special about you. The only one who's special is Jesus. <laughs> right? And, he's so, and you're so special to him that he came to seek and save you. 
You're so special that he left his home to save you. You're so special that he separated in relation with him with the Father. He separated fellowship with the Father to save you. That's how special you are. So the next time you think you're not special, you are. You are so special. I mean, take that in a positive sense. (laughs) Special. When, when I was 20 years old, he called for me. He says, Alan. And the Holy Spirit changed my heart and changed my life. I became a Christian. Those of you who are Christian, Jesus called you by name. There are billions of people on earth, but the Bible says he knows your name every day of your life and every hair of your head he knows. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me just say this. Perhaps Jesus is calling you by name, calling you to himself, calling you to him. And when Jesus calls the case, he calls him to a friendship. Going to someone's home in, in, in that culture and having a meal with them in that culture uh, is an act of friendship. But he's a chief tax collector. So if you do dine with him, it also means that you're what? You're also what? You're also in agreement with what he does as for a living. You're also okay with extorting people. You're also okay in cheating and stealing from people. That's what that meant. But in John 15, Jesus says, he's our friend. Don't ever, ever look this. Yes, Jesus is our Lord, God, Savior, King, Sovereign. But Christ, he's also our friend. He's a person we get to know. Jesus is alive and he wants to eat with you. He wants to speak with you. He wants to help you. Jesus is a friend. He's our God and he's our friend. Isn't that amazing? That he's our God and yet he is our friend. Right? That God will become a man and that he would invite his enemies to be his friends. And be willing to eat with us and to spend time with us. And through the presence, the power of his Holy Spirit to never leave us nor forsake us. And that's exactly what's happening here for Zacchaeus. We get so much encouragement from Zacchaeus that it does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus calls out out to you and he will welcome you as a friend forgives you if any of all your sin that's exactly what he does for Zacchaeus that's what he does for me and that's what he will do for you he is your friend you know I'm so humbled by that that he is my God and yet he's my friend does that encourage you that Jesus is your friend does that encourage you because the alternative is not good. Because if Jesus is not your friend, Jesus is your what? Your enemy. So look what Zacchaeus did. In his excitement, he probably fell, I don't know. But, but he heard and came down and received joyfully. Zacchaeus is excited by the news. He quickly comes down from the tree and joyfully welcomes Jesus to, be his, to go to his home. Which is the only way to respond when the Son of God calls you by name. This is probably what what moved him from mere curiosity and interest to joyfully receiving Jesus. I believe the answer is that he quickly was able to grasp what Jesus is all about. He immediately recognized that this Jesus was someone different. He was different than the others who claimed to be a spiritual uh, person. He was different than other Jewish teachers who had never stepped foot into his house. No wonder he was doing everything he can to know the Lord. No one has, he doesn't have much guests. He was a chief tax collector. He, he, no one will dine with him. So he, had, he didn't have many people going to his house. And, and I want you guys to, to remember, 
it's not just inviting Jesus to his home. He's inviting the other 12 too, right? And the other 12 have been walking for a while. So can you imagine the 12 says, hey, we're, Jesus said, we're, all 13 of us are going to your house. What if Jesus says to you, hey, I'm coming to your house, right? And I'm going to bring 12 of my closest friends with me, right? And then, by the way, they're hungry. And by the way, their feet is dirty. And by the way, they're dirty, <laughs> right? And then Zacchaeus said, no problem. No problem. This is exactly what Matthew did. Once Jesus called him, he threw a party. He took out all his finest food and his finest wine, and he dined with Jesus and his disciples. Right? That's what he did. Look at verse 7. Look at the reaction. How many guys would think that... Actually, let me go back to verse 7. Okay, let me just go back to verse 7. I'm going to skip this portion. I'm going to go back to verse 7. The, the last point, he changed me. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I, I restore it fourfold. Luke does not describe the Lord's presentation of the gospel to Zacchaeus, but definitely it happened, um, or, or his response. But one thing we know, that salvation of the man was evident because there was an immediate change in his life. When people ask me, how do you know you're saved? When people have asked me that. When people have asked me, how do you know I'm saved? And I always have said this, and I will never change because this is what the Bible says. Have you seen a change in your life? Have you seen a dramatic change in your life? Because that's the only way you know. Because you can't continue to be, you can't be transformed by the grace of God and stays the same. It's impossible. There has to be a dramatic change. So if you ever question your own eternal salvation, your assurance of salvation, just ask yourself this question. Have I seen a change in my life? Have I seen a a dramatic change in my life? Because when we see this story about this chief tax collector named Zacchaeus, we know there was salvation that came to his house. We know that he was a true son of Abraham. Why? Because there was a change in his life, a dramatic change in his life. So that's how you and I would know that we have been saved when we see a dramatic change in our life. And in addition, I want you to know what he called Jesus. He called Jesus Lord. And then what happens next is amazing. Immediately he had a desire to make restitution. I don't have the time to unpack restitution in the Bible, but according to the law of Moses in Leviticus 5 and Numbers 5, I require restitution plus one-fifth. But Zacchaeus goes far beyond the law by offering restitution of four times the amount. I want you guys to see this. I want you to think 100%, okay? He said to the Lord, half of my goods, that's what? What's the percentage? Okay, uh, if you're Asian, you know this. (laughs) Half is... 50%, 50%, right? So 50% got Zacchaeus, I'm going to give to the poor, right? And you say, oh man, then he's going to keep half to himself, right? Actually, no. I want you to look what he says. Half of it, because I know I defrauded people, 
and I need the half of it to restore, restore it fourfold. He was very rich. This guy was very, very rich to be able to give fourfold back. After he gets fourfold back, how many thinks he has left? How much do you think he has left? How much? Not very much anymore, right? Actually, he has a lot more. He had all these millions of dollars, but he was empty. He'll have zero dollars or close to zero dollars, but you know what he has? Eternal life. Right? What profits a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What profits? Any profit? Fourfold. Can you imagine the line of this? This probably went for days and weeks. Imagine the line. There's people lining up. Right? People lining up. Saying, I, I know he cheated me. So they will line up and they said fourfold. And Zacchaeus will just write a check. Fourfold. Months, weeks have gone by. Probably people lining up their streets. And you know what the people's response? I want you to see people's response in verse 7. And when they saw it, they all what? They all what? Grumbled. They all complained. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They won't forgive him. He's already making restitution. I give half of myself to the poor. I'm going I'm to pay you back fourfold. More than what the law requires. Right? More than what the, what the law of Moses requires. I'm going to give you fourfold. So imagine yourself, right? He stole a Hyundai from you or a Ford and he stole something from you. Right? He, he stole a Ford and, or a Hyundai or a Kia. And he says, you know what? I'm going to take that Kia back and the Hyundai and that Ford. And I'm going to give you a Tesla or a, a Rolls Royce instead. Right? So you see all this transformation happening in this man. All this dramatic change in this man. And what did, how did the people respond? They weren't thankful to God that God changed his man. What did they do? They what? Complained about it. They grumbled about it. They totally lost the meaning of all this. When you see someone change so dramatically, do you complain about it? When your husband and your wife makes this dramatic change, or a brother and sister makes this dramatic change for Jesus, do you grumble? Man, why did God change them? Why is he now good? Why is he now gracious and generous? Why? But these people missed the whole point, didn't they? They grumbled. Let me, let me close with this. Um, there's three kinds of givers. Do you know there's three kinds of givers? There's three kinds of givers. The flint, the sponge, and the honeycomb. To get anything out of the flint, you have to get, you have to got to hammer it. Then only get chips and the sparks. To get water out of the sponge, you have to squeeze it. The more you squeeze it, the more you get. But the honeycomb simply overflows with sweetness. When a person understands what God has done for them, you don't have to prime them to give. You don't need 10 collections. They understand that he is a great God. In fact, at offering time, we ought to jump to our feet and applaud that we are here to give 
have something to give, and have been blessed to have the strength enough to work that we might be able to give. We ought to just applaud the privilege of giving. What kind of giver are you? A flint, a sponge, or a honeycomb? There's a... How many of you guys here know of generous people? Generous people in your life. How many of you guys know generous people? Right? Now, how many of you guys think you're a generous person? Did I ask that question wrong? <laughs> how many of you guys think they're generous? Oh, no takers. Okay. I think this is good. I was hoping that there's some positive things in here. But... But if you don't know, let me tell you six things about what, 10 ways you can spot a generous person. Okay? Number one, generous people tend to be satisfied people. Except for one thing, the amount they give away. Zacchaeus finally found contentment and satisfaction in Christ. And now he was free to give all the money he extorted half of his good to the poor. Number two, generous people always want to give more. They want to be more generous with what they have. They're typically not driven by the desire to acquire more possessions. They have a nice house and they may have a nice car, but those things do not drive them. They would be just be as content without them. Generous people say, say also say yes more and then more than they say no. They're good stewards of their money and possession in a way that allows them to say yes more often. Number four, generous people do not wait for opportunities for generosity to come to them. They ask, is there anything I can do for you? And they mean it. They seek out ways in which they can bless you. They, they know that some of the most needy people will never approach another individual for assistance. Therefore, ge- generous people often involve taking the initiative. They take the initiative. Number five, um, generous people do not think of themselves as owners. They don't talk about what they have. They, they know that any possession they hold is God's, and it's their responsibility to manage it well for God's purpose. Their stuff are just tools to be used for generosity. Their, their, their stuff are just tools to be used for, for people in need. They truly believe God did not design us to be hoarders, but conduits through which his generous, generosity flows. And lastly, generous people hold things loosely. Their lack of attachment to stuff develop lightheartedness in them. They are not burdened by the, the drive to get and keep more stuff. They're, they're concerned about what others have that, have that they do not, and they live life open-handedly. Um, and this is the power of the gospel. See, in the gospel, God's acceptance is not the reward for having cleaned up your life. It is the power to actually clean up. Jesus did not start with case by having an argument about taxation and loss. He was breaking. Jesus started by going to his house which showed him that he cared about him, the person. We have to start evangelism as he did by becoming friends with tax collectors and sinners. And it was this kindness that led him to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. So let me ask you, are you generous? First of all, before, before we go, my time's up. I'm over by a minute and a half already. But uh, uh, three more minutes. 
Um, first of all, I want to say thank you for being so generous. Uh, as far as I know, Delinda would, would concur. We, we finished in the black this year, right? Uh, last year? Okay, we finished in the black, so thank you. Thank you for your generosity. And I'm not preaching this to you because uh, we want more of your money. We're not. I'm not doing it. I'm preaching this message because God wants more of your heart. Because if he gets your heart, he gets your money. He doesn't have your heart. He will never have your money. So my question for you is, who owns your money? If you think you do, then God says, you can't worship me. You can't worship me. It's impossible to worship God and money at the same time. You could sing all you want. You could listen to the sermon all you want. You could do any of that. But God will tell you, they worship me with, my, with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Because where your heart is, that's where your treasure is as well. So I will ask you again before we close here, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? But, but you say, oh, but God, I, I, I give 10%. Do you know that that's only the starting point? That's not the end point? So when, someone, when you die, and all of us are somewhat destined there because of sin, how much will you take with you? Can I ask you guys how much you guys will take with you? How much? How much will you take with you? You know what you will take with you at your grave? Absolutely nothing. Right? So let's just say you tell your wife or your husband, you know, when I die, put all my money in the casket. Right? You know what will happen? Before they, before they drop you six feet under, I will go back and open the thing and give it to the church. <laughs> That's what I will do, because you have no use for it. So I'm going to ask you again. It's not about money. It's always about your heart. Zacchaeus became, was a greedy person who became generous. And the reason behind that is because his heart was changed. And it was changed by God. That's what made him a generous giver. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for uh, that you have said that you love a cheerful giver. And Lord, I pray that um, as a church, oh Lord, that we don't just um, share our, uh, our wealth with others, our money with others also, but also our time and, and our talents with others as well. So, Father, I pray this morning uh, that as we uh, look at our own hearts and, and contemplate, O oh Lord, um, how much we should give to you. Um, God, help us, O oh Lord, to check our hearts first, uh, just checking how much you gave to us. And you gave us your all. And help us, O oh Lord, to give you our best and our all. In Jesus' name, amen.